thank you so very much, Crimes and Kelsos. Appreciate that good song. Thankful for that good reminder. Sometimes life is really hard, isn't it? There have been times that I've made a mess and it's my fault and I have to make, I have to try to make it right. And there have been other times that I did the best I could and it really wasn't my fault. Maybe I didn't have the ability or the talent or the wisdom or whatever it was. It's not really anybody's fault. It just, just didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And then other times, maybe it's other people's fault. Or maybe it's nobody's fault. Sometimes it's just life. Sometimes things just happen in life that you really can't blame anyone. You can't really say, but man, it doesn't make it not hard. Sometimes it's still really just hard. Sometimes life just seems like it overwhelms. And you know what I've noticed is, is that when things are going great and, and the plans are working and, and things are just going the way it should, everybody just is right there, aren't they? They want to celebrate with you. They want their piece of the credit. Even if they don't deserve any of the credit, they still want their piece. And I mean, you just, I mean you've got friends that you didn't know you had. But man, when it falls apart... Nobody wants the credit for their part. And often you're left holding the bag. Alone, empty, disappointed. I remember one time in particularly that the denominational leadership had asked me to take on really an impossible task. The job that was... I didn't realize it then. I was young, foolish, full of ideals and thinking that with God I could do anything. And we can, but we can't. And you kind of learn a little bit of that nuance a little bit as you get older and get a, a few of these failures. But I jumped into this believing that I could, with God's help, I, I, wasn't, I don't believe I was prideful. I, I, I just think I was idealistic. And I thought with God's help, we were going to go in and we were going to take care of this situation, this, this impossible problem, and we were, God was going to help us, and, and we were going to do something great for God. And as, as a young person who had been called into the ministry, that was what I wanted. I wanted to do something great for God. And I went in, I jumped in, and I worked hard, and I did everything that I could do. And I, and I studied the, the situation, and I, did, I talked to people, and I did everything I could to fix the problem. And do you know what? It failed miserably. It was a disaster. And do you know whose fault it was? Mine. And leadership that had asked me to take on the task, they abandoned me. The only wisdom I think that I got, that I was told, was, well, that you aren't the first to have this problem and you won't be the last. Wow. 
Thanks. Have you been there? Have you been there? You, your dreams, your hopes, your effort, your energy, your months or years of, of putting effort and energy into something and it doesn't work out. And we live in a culture that really looks down at failure. We treat failure as though it were the plague. And if you're the failure, if you're the mess up, or even if you aren't the mess up, but you're the, you're the scapegoat, you're the person we can put it on, so we can dis- so everyone else can distance themselves from you because of what you're uh, of that failure. Man, we just like that. And do you know it seems so strange to me that we have such an aversion to this failure as a culture because failure is a part of life. But we're, it's almost like, man, it's like the plague. And it just seems like the older a person gets, the less room there is for them to have these mistakes and failures in their life. Bryson's totting around, he's walking, and I love it. But if he falls, nobody, has, nobody gets excited about it. But now if Sister Mahan falls, then we're going to get excited about it. One, the, the consequences are greater. Bryson falls, he's probably, he might bump his head or whatever, and you know, we might get a little excited if he bumps his head. But for the most part, it's going to be all right. Sister Mahan falls, I'm sorry, Sister Mahan, we're going to have you checked out. We're going to get x-rays, we're gonna, especially if you're in bad shape. And you might be upset at us. But the reason we're going to do that is because the consequences are so much greater. And the older we get, the greater the consequences of our mistakes. And young people, I think this is one of the reasons that God is so good and so gracious to allow you within this place in your life so that you can make mistakes with the wisdom of your parents and grandparents and of your church so that you can attempt things and to try to do things. And just as I was this young preacher who was excited about doing something great for God, I failed at it, but the consequences I think may have been less because I was younger than if I had been older. I don't know, maybe that isn't the case, but oftentimes children and young people can make those mistakes and it's not so costly. How many times did Henry Ford attempt to start an automobile company? I think it was six or seven. Numerous failures until he got it right. And boy, wouldn't any of us be happy to have the Ford wealth today. Milton Hershey, I think he went bankrupt seven times. Before Hershey's chocolate finally became the place that it is today. And many of you have had Hershey's chocolate this week. Those failures were very real, and they were very painful. 
And we are getting to a place more and more where we are teaching, and I, and I believe wrongly, we're teaching our children and our young people not to take risks because failure is so terrible. And what we've done, and, and we've lived by a motto, and this is, it's a, I hope I don't get in trouble with some parents here, but this motto is a bad motto, okay? Better safe than sorry is a bad motto. Because safety without any opportunity to be sorry means that there is no opportunity to learn. We need to let our kids who are learning to walk fall down and get some bruises. When they, we teach them to ride their bike and they get the scraped knees and... You know, I, we're to a place in our culture where we're almost afraid to let our children ride bicycles because it's, they could fall down. And we are robbing our children and also ourselves of a very important piece of life, and that is failure is the best teacher. I was reading... Oh, a month or so back ago, about some uh, people who, who want to change the way people learn and, and their doctorates and smart people. But they were saying this. They said, you need to change the way you think when you attempt something. When you try something, you should plan 10 failures. When you're trying something new, you should plan on it. And so when you try it and you, and you fail, you go, all right, that's one. I've got nine left. I've tried this the second time, and, and, and that's all right. I've learned some stuff from it. Now I'm going to go for number three. I've still, I've still got eight more turns. But we don't do that. We like to get hold of failure, and we make it almost as though it's final. And do you know what? There's a lot of companies that are bankrupt that we never heard of because that they went bankrupt and they didn't try the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the seventh time, however many times it would have taken. And maybe it just was a bad idea. And maybe it was, they were never going to get it off the ground. But, but, but seriously, we've gotten to a place where we don't want to give that person that second or third try. You've already failed once. You're out. And it's a lonely, difficult place to be when you're the failure and everyone's abandoned you. And the few people that stay with you, half of them are saying, I told you so. That's why they stuck around. It's because I wanted to tell you, I told you so. And, the, and you know what else? We say something like this, or we do something like this. They, you know, we're hurting and so they, these people that have stayed around with us, you know what? We often hurt them because hurt people hurt people. We lash out and we attack the very, the very few people who are still standing with us in the midst of our failure, and we're attacking them. So what do we do in the midst of this place of, of, of doing our best, our broken dreams, and, and our hopes shattered, and, and, and all of this? What do we do? Where can we go? What, what, what should we do when, when, we, when life is just too hard? Maybe it's not even failure. Maybe it's just life is hard. Sickness and death and, and uh, broken relationships. What do we do? I don't know the first time that it happened in Scripture, but if you have your Bible, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 16. 
Some of you didn't think I was going to get to the scripture, did you? You thought I forgot. Genesis chapter 16, I want to share with you a story of someone who failed and someone I think we think negatively of and something, someone we think poorly about. And maybe not fairly. In Genesis chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. Wait a minute. God's made him a promise already. He's going to have children as the as stars in the sky and the sands in the sea. He's been promised this. And Sarai's bore him no children. So that, that, that first phrase, we're not, we're not even very far into this. We're right now, we're already at a place where, we're, where we've got a shock. We've got something that's not going right. Not going according to God's plan, that, as far as we know. And, and man, there must be some kind of failure on Abraham or Sarah's fault. So they're, they're, they're failing to have children. They're fulfilling to do God's will for their life. And she, being Sarai, had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Oh, Hagar. And, and all of us kind of, you know, the bad person. The villain of the story. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go into thy, uh, my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And all of us say, Gross. This is common. This, is, this, this was a normal thing in that day that, that if you didn't have children with your, your wife, then you would have a surrogacy. And you're, you would take one of your slaves and you would have children by them and raise them as your own children. And this was really, really common. In fact, it's been common up until even some of the kings in England. You know, they would, they would have a mistress. They would have somebody, a lower class, with it. if they couldn't have a, an heir through their, the queen, they would get some illegitimate child to take over. So this is normal. Not godly, not right, but normal. It's a dangerous thing when we go with human wisdom instead of God's wisdom. So where's it? I'm not sure if this is the first mistake in the story, I'm not, but it, it certainly is one of them. And so here she goes. She says, and Abraham listened to the voice of, of Sarai. He hearkened to her. And some of the guys said, well, that was his first mistake. <laughs> Typically, it's a good idea to listen to your wife. It really is. But here's the problem. Abraham didn't take time to talk to God about it. It's really good to have a conversation with your spouse, your husband and your wife, and you try to come up to a solution but even that solution, even if you, the two of you agree, really we should be talking to God about it. And I know maybe you and your, your husband or your wife agree so rarely that if you do, you think it must be God's will. <laughs> just hold up. Just hold up. It just might not be. In Abraham and Sarah's situation, it wasn't. And Sarah, uh, Abram's wife, uh, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and Abraham had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, gave her to her husband and Abraham to be his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abraham, My wrong be upon thee. Isn't that just like what we do in the midst of our mistake? 
not my fault. It's your fault. Abraham, you're the head of the house. You should have known better. I was emotional. I couldn't have children. It's all your fault. I've given my maiden to your bosom, and when she saw that she's conceived, I was despised in her eyes. Let the Lord judge between me and thee. And I'm like, man, if I'm the Lord, I'm saying, Sarah, you were the one that brought this up. It's your fault. What do you mean, Sarah? And I'm sure her defense was, he's the head of the house. He made the decision. Isn't it nice how we can always get out of it when it's our fault? You know, some people get married because they can't blame everything on the government. Some of you will get that later. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain. Oh, I'm sorry, in verse 6. And Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do it as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. Isn't this going great? I mean, this is a beautiful picture, isn't it? I mean, the problems are just getting worse and worse. Sarai says, it's not my fault. It's your problem, Abraham. And Abraham says, I don't want to deal with it. You deal with it. She's your handmaid, and nobody's talking to God. The whole time, nobody's talking to God. So Sarah says, you know what? I am the boss. She's my slave. And so she, I don't know if she beats her or what she does, but she deals hardly with her. And so Hagar, she stops and asks God for what to do, right? No. She says, I got to get out of here. And you know who can blame her? This whole process, is this Hagar's fault? I don't think so. She didn't bring it up. She didn't seduce Abraham. She's not the one who's been a part of this. In fact, she's a slave. She may have had no say in this at all. And when we think about this story, our venom is towards Hagar, and Hagar probably is the least guilty of the three. She has no standing. She's a slave. And maybe she hoped that she would get her freedom through this process. Maybe she hoped something good would come out of this. Maybe she hoped that, that, that she would no longer be slave and would be a free woman if she could give Abraham a son. Maybe she had some hopes and dreams that, that associated with, with when she found out that it was going to happen to her. But she's not really the, been the decision maker until just now. She says, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm doing my own thing. Well, isn't that smart? She's a pregnant woman on the run with no food, no, no shelter, no water, no map. She's in bad shape. And as bad as that would be if it were in our day, in that day it was even more dangerous. There's no police force. There's nobody protecting travelers. No one protecting women. She was in serious peril. She had made a really dumb choice. As unpleasant as the beating or whatever happened at, at back home at, with Sarai, it, she was putting herself in a date, much worse situation. A much worse potential for harm. And so what happens? And the angel of the Lord found her by the fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain of the way of Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou? And 
whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, and it shall be uh, not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me, El Roai. This is, this is the name of God for, for our series this morning. The God who sees me. She said, Here I also have looked after him. That seest me. She said, I, I got to see the one who sees me. In the midst of this disaster, in the midst of this, this mistake after mistake after mistake, in the midst of, of, of failure and disappointments and life being hard, God reveals that he sees Hagar. He sees Hagar. And I want to tell you this morning, I don't know what all that you're facing and I don't know all the burdens that you're going through and I don't know all the, the things that you feel are your fault or not your fault, but they're happening to you and, it, and life just is crushing you. I want you to know that he is the God who sees you. He sees you. Wow. Now, I think we could do something here. I think we could make a mistake to believe that, that it means that, that God, is, God is like the FBI and he's got our, you know, our phones tapped and he, you know, he's, you know, he's got his satellites and his binoculars out. God isn't watching Hagar to smash her down for her mistakes. He's not doing that. He's not there looking for something he can prosecute. He's not there. He didn't show up to say, Hagar, you miserable person. You're supposed to be back with Abraham. Don't you know what my will is for you? He's not doing that. God shows up in Hagar's life and reveals to her that he sees her when life is harder than she can handle. And God is there for us when life is harder than we can handle. When, when it doesn't matter that if it was Hagar's fault or not. It doesn't matter what her, her percentage of wrong was. All that mattered is that God saw her. God saw her. But you know, I think we can fall into another mistake. I think we can kind of get this idea that, you know, Okay, so God's not this FBI person and, you know, he's not trying to find everything out that's wrong with us. But, you know, that, you know, God sees everything. You know, God sees the whole world. And so, you know, God just, you know, he sees us. Okay. Kind of like this, you know, cosmic Santa Claus. You know, he knows when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake kind of deal. There's a difference between seeing and seeing something. Maybe it might be a little easier if I tried to explain it in hearing and hearing something. We've got some teachers here. Some of you have taught 
And if you haven't been a teacher in a classroom, you've taught children perhaps, uh, Sunday school or your own children, you can tell your child, you can tell your student something, and you can know that they heard what you said, but you know good and well they weren't listening to what you were saying. They heard it, but they weren't listening. And some parents, I've seen, they've gotten to a place where they require their child to look at them and maybe even repeat back what they were told. And I've done this when I know that I have a child who's tuning me out. I need your eyes and I need you to tell me back what you heard me say. Because what I'm saying is too important for you to hear but not listen. Right? You've been there. And if you haven't been there, you've been a kid where you're the one that has been told, look at me. Because <laughs> you were hearing but not listening. I heard you. Not good enough. This is too important. This is too important for you to hear me. I need you to listen to me. The same is true for sight. We don't have the difference between hearing and listening on the English word, I think. Uh, uh, we don't have a good difference in like hearing and listening but you can see something and then you can really see something some time ago they had this uh law in this particular state they had a law that you couldn't have your phone visible at all in your vehicle i don't remember which state it was or Maybe it's even in canada i'm not even sure but that no phones no cell phones that your cell phones have to be put away not even not in your hand. I mean, no cell phone anywhere that can be seen. Put it in your purse, put it in your glove box. And so what they did is they had people, they had police officers that were holding up signs like, you know, we'll work for food type signs, but instead were saying, police are up ahead ch to check on cell phone usage. And they're at, the, they're at the red light up here. And so put your phone away. And these were police officers who were doing this. They were warning the people that were coming up to this red light. The police were coming up through the intersection, checking to see who had visible cell phones. And everybody who saw the, those men holding up signs but didn't take the time to see them got tickets. You see what I'm trying to say? I'll illustrate for us this morning. We can see but not really see. And I want you to know this morning that God doesn't just see you like he sees everybody, but he really, really sees us. Especially, I believe, in the midst of our hard times when life is a mess. When things don't seem to make sense. When life is too hard. And when maybe it's our fault, maybe it's not our fault, maybe it's some of our fault. It doesn't matter. Sometimes I think we get too caught up on whose fault it is. We've got to take responsibility for our piece of it. Certainly we do. And as a leader, I, have, I know that, uh, that leaders have to take responsibility for the mistakes of the people that are following them. It's part of it. But what do we do when we are so focused on whose fault it is that 
we don't understand. We never get to the place where we get out of our mess. See, God really saw Hagar where she was. And do you know what he does? He calls her by name. He knows what her job is. He says, Hagar, Sarai's maid. He, I, he's letting her know, I'm seeing you, Hagar. I know what's happened to you. I know what they did. I know what their plan was. I know your part in it. And do you know what else God does? He gives her direction. Go home. Go home. Now, God's going to change in about 13 years. It's going to be a, a little different thing. And God's going to, to in his providence and in his will, Sarah, uh, Hagar's going to leave with Ishmael. And God's will's going to change for that time period. Okay? But for right now, Hagar needs to go home. And sometimes, and I'd say honestly most of the time, especially when we've made a mess of things, if it's our fault or even if it's not our fault, but a lot of times if we will spend time with God and really believe that he sees us, that he is El Roi, the, the God who sees us, he will give us the direction we need in our life. And it might not be what you want to do because I don't think Hagar wanted to go back to Sarai. And it may not be the fun thing to do, and it may not be the popular thing, but God gave Hagar direction. But here's something else he gave her. He gave Hagar a promise. The son that you're going to have, I want you to know I've seen him too. And while everybody and a lot of people you know, they, they're, they're hard on Ishmael, and, and certainly, we, you know, I've heard, uh, you know, end times people, they really like to attack, you know, the old Ishmael and the, 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 their line and all the problems they caused in human history. I want you to know, if God wanted to, Ishmael would not have been born. But God made a promise to Hagar in the midst of all of these mistakes, I'm going to make him many and mighty and you can disagree with how God handled that or not. But I want to tell you it's something beautiful. When God takes our messes and he takes our mistakes and he says, I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to do something beautiful with your mistake. I'm going to do something beautiful with your mess. And you don't have the strength. You don't have the powerful. You're not mighty enough to thwart God's plan for your life. You can't. You say, wait, 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 but I, uh, I did this, and I've done that, and I've done that. Oh, but what, 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 what. Listen, God can take that mess that you made, and as soon as you're willing to give it to him, he's able to do something beautiful with it because he's the God who sees. He's the God who sees us in the midst of our mess, and he sees how to put the pieces back together in a more beautiful way than, than what we could ever imagine. How would we live differently if we believed it? I was thinking this morning, you know, something I've always wanted to do but have never done is I've, I'd like to shoot clay pigeons. I've never done it before. 
I, I've, I've seen videos of people doing it, and I've always thought, man, that'd be kind of cool. You know, pull, and, you know, bang, and it just blows up. I, man, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. But I have never, ever done it. I don't, I, I don't know anything about it. I mean, I've shot at targets and, and so forth that are staying still. I've shot at, you know, maybe a, a ground animal like a deer that is moving, and I still missed. So I have, I'm pretty certain... If someone were to say to me, you know what, Pastor, if you want to go clay pigeon shooting, we're, we're going to do it. So, we, so you, I mean, you decide, you, you know, hey, you, Pastor, we're, I'm going to provide the gun, the ammunition, the clays, pigeons, we're, we're, I'm going to take you. So maybe we just go. Maybe we go out to one of Dean's fields and we're going to do it. And so they say, you know, this, you, they kind of tell me a little bit about what to do. And so I say, pull, I, the, the clay pigeon goes, and I shoot, and I probably have a 100% chance of missing the first one. I would say that if I hit the first clay pigeon, it would be a miracle or a special gun or something. <laughs> so, you know, okay, well, you missed the first one, Pastor. No big deal. Hey, you know, we got some more clay pigeons. We shoot the second one, and, and I shoot, and I miss. We shoot a third one, uh, you know, they, or I don't know if you call it shooting, but you send it off. And you shoot, and I miss the third one. And, you know, now it's kind of getting annoying because I'm wasting your ammunition and your clay pigeons. And you're kind of getting a little frustrated with me, but you don't want to show me that you're frustrated, that, you know, you really hoped I'd get it by the third one. So, you know, you try, you try to talk me through it, and maybe, you, you know, you put your hands on, on my arms and kind of just kind of guide how I would shoot and talk me through it. And so you, we try a couple more. I miss it. those two. Maybe some of the guys that have come along, maybe they're starting to make fun of me a little bit. Preacher can't hit a clay pigeon. No, but I can hit you on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and maybe, you, maybe you've been providing the ammunition. Maybe you're the one that took me out and you said, here, let me show you. And so now you start shooting them and you're hitting them every single time. And now you say, here, you try. And I shoot and I'm missing. Does this sound like very much fun? It doesn't. It doesn't sound like fun. Because something that I thought would be fun and something that I thought I might enjoy, I keep failing at. And you keep feeling frustrated because you've made investments in me. And it's not working out right. And you don't know how to help me. But what would happen if in that story I missed the first couple of them? And you say to me, preacher... I've got a box of shells. I don't care about it. Let's just keep shooting and let's have fun because we're just here to have fun. And you may, I shoot a couple more and miss and, and you shoot a couple of times and you hit them and we have a good time and, and we just have fun and maybe we talk about life and we talk about family. We just have a good time. And maybe I leave there never hitting one of those clay pigeons. But we had a... We had maybe some hot dogs and hamburgers and some chips and some pop maybe, and we've just had a good time of fellowship. And Doesn't that story end differently? Do you know what makes the difference? It's whether you really saw me or not. Whether you really saw me was the goal to, in order to make sure that I could be a professional clay pigeon shooter. 
Or was the goal for us to be friends and for our relationship to grow? I believe that if we would, we would understand that God really sees us, that first of all, when we mess up, I think it would be easy for us to run to God quickly because we know that He's our friend and He cares about us. But I think also it would be easy for us to run to people in the midst of their hurting and their mistakes and their problems. Because when we have a friend like Jesus, we want to be a friend like Jesus. He's the God who sees us. He's the God who sees you when you're hurting, when life's a mess. He's the God who sees you when, when it's your fault, when it's not your fault, when it's just life. It doesn't matter. He's the God who sees you. This week, I want to be able to take risk for God, being willing to fail because I know that he'll give me direction and maybe I can get closer to the goal. This week, I want to run to him quicker when things aren't going the way that I hope they do because I know he sees and I know he cares. But also this week, I want to be the one that stands with the person who's hurting. And even if they lash out at me and even if they hurt me because they're hurting, I still want to stand close because I want to be, be a friend like God is a friend to us. He's the God who sees us. And I want to be a friend who sees you. Let's stand together this morning. Amen. Brother Bob, would you please dismiss us in prayer?